Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, good morning. Glad to see everyone here this morning. Um, as we get started, I have a couple of quick announcements. Is uh, Actually, not even a couple. I have a lot of announcements, all right? So I'm going to try to be quick, though. Um, you can tell that things are starting to open up, and we're starting to kind of get back to the way things were, at least a little bit, because of how many things are happening around campus. And so let me, uh, yeah, let me very quickly walk through those. Uh, on Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, we're going to have baby dedications, and um, that is so much fun because we get to see all the little ones come up here. But it is really about the parents dedicating to raise their kids in a home that follows Jesus and to do their best to raise kids who follow Jesus as well. And so that's kind of a way for us as a community to come together and uh, affirm that and also um, a piece of accountability. And it's just really fun. It's a really uh, great way for you to dedicate to raise your kids in the church and to love Christ. And so if you are interested in doing that, registration is open. And if you've never dedicated your kids, um, please join us on that weekend to do that. Um, and there will be a class for that on April 25th after this service. Also, um, VBS is uh, June 21st through the 25th. Registration is now open. We're very excited about that. Those of us who have had kids around way too much this last year, we want to sign up twice if we could, but we can't. So um, that's a, that is going to be, I think, a limited capacity. And if you know anything about VBS around here, we have a lot of kids, and, the, and I don't think we're going to be able to well, we'll see, but we're going to try to fit as many as possible, but the earlier you sign up, the better to make sure that your kids get in there and um, they're a part of that. Also, next weekend, we have food drive. That's at uh, from 9 to 11, and we're going to need more food for our food pantry and uh, gifts of uh, gift cards. Um, that's just a great way for us to be able to give back to the community. If you know that we have been doing, um, do you guys hear this sound right here that's in my ear? There it is. It's still there, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I hear it, I'm with you. Um, okay, we'll work on that. Anyway, uh, and then, um, what did I say? Oh yeah, so uh, food pantry that's at the um, ranch house, you can drop off next Saturday, and then um, Royal Family Kids Camp. We are going to be hosting that this year, we missed it last year, we're very excited. This is for kids in the foster care system, we just come and we love on them for a week, and um, we get to just uh, show them what it looks like to be followers of Jesus and, um, and just show his love to them. And so this is a way that we fundraise for that. And you just throw in all of your change and you bring it back. So pick this up on your way up. You bring it back full of change and a check on top. And, uh, and that helps us to be able to fund uh, that uh, camp for those kids, okay? And then finally, um, we're going to be giving back to God. And you guys have just been so great in this last season. Okay, if there is one good thing about this last year, it's that we don't do offering buckets. I'm just so, I just, I just feel good about that. I don't know, you guys have been great. You're giving online. You're giving in person in those black boxes. So please continue to do so, um, just so that we don't have to do offering pa passes anymore. You know, it's just like people don't have to do, they put their trash in, it's like a whole mess. Okay, here we go. Um, so anyway, uh, so this, uh, this weekend, I, w I was thinking about what I should talk about, because last weekend, of course, was Easter, and it was a, it was a great celebration. We just had so much fun, and, and I thought, well, what's next after this? You know, as we, we did six weeks leading up to Easter where we talked about um, 
we talked about, well, we talked through the book of Matthew, the master class, and we talked about Jesus' ministry and how he came and proclaimed that the kingdom of God has arrived and, and it's this upside down kingdom and it takes all the values and all the beliefs of the world and it turns them upside down. And, and he talks about how um, he is the king of this kingdom. And the whole thing culminated in Jesus, the king on the cross, and how he provided a way for us to be a part of his kingdom. And, and it was just such a cool series. I just loved walking through Matthew and I thought, well, well what's next? What do we say? Like, what happens after the resurrection? Do we go back and now we do another gospel or do we? And I thought, well, you know what? The Bible actually lays this out. It gives us what's next after this. Is if you, if you look at the scriptures, there is the next step. And it's kind of this next chapter that God is writing in human history. Jesus talked about in Matthew 16. And no, I'm not going to go back in the book of Matthew. Uh, but I just do, do want to highlight one thing. In Matthew 16, and we talked about this a little bit that there was this point, and it was a turning point for Jesus and the disciples, in which Peter made this profession. He said, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the, the king that we have been waiting for. And it was this big moment because they finally realized it, and Jesus finally admitted it, and so it was this turning point, and they head to Jerusalem, and, and that's when we, you know, we jumped into the, to the, to the Easter story. But in this moment... He says something that's really profound. He makes this, this prediction about the future of what's going to take place, and, and we kind of skip over it. Um, it feels like it got put on the back burner a little bit, because when Peter makes this profession, here's what Jesus says um, in response to this. He says, on this rock, and the rock meaning this massive claim that Jesus is the Savior of the world, on this rock, I will build my church. And this is the first time that he's used this word. And for us, this is a religious word. But for them, this wasn't necessarily a religious word. The word here in the Greek is ekklesia. And it simply means it's a, it's a gathering of people. It's an assembly, a congregation. And he just throw the, throws this out there. And then he says, this church um, is going to be so big that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then he continues on and he goes on. Well, hold on, pause. Can we rewind to that whole church thing? Because you mentioned it, but then it feels like we didn't talk about it a whole lot after that. You said it was going to be such a big deal. There's going to be a movement that it was going to take over the world. And so the vision for Jesus here is to create a movement called the church in which it will be a gathering of people that will come together with really one thing in common. And the one thing is that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king over creation, that he is the savior of the world. And he says that it's going to be so big and it's going to be so important and it's going to be so powerful that people who belong to this movement won't primarily see themselves by their race or nationality or citizenship or age or wealth or gender, but they're going to see themselves primarily as a part of this movement, the movement of Jesus. Now, to put this in context, let's think about if we were to say, if, we, if this were to happen today. Let's imagine that you and I, we go to lunch afterward you're buying, and we're sitting around, and we're, we're just talking about the future and kind of some things that we hope happen, and, and I say, guys, you know, one of the dreams that I have for the future is I want to start this movement. Like, I want to start this, this gathering of people, and you go, oh, okay, well, tell me more about that. Well, okay, here's kind of the, the, the main idea, is that people are going to come together all over the world, no common language, no common nationality or race, they're just going to come all over the world, and they're going to worship me. Like they're going to come and talk about how great I am, the things that I've done. We're going to call it 
Codianity. Okay, it's going to be called Codianity, and it's going to just change the world forever. You know who probably wouldn't sign up for this movement? Anyone who ever knew me. Is they would say, Cody, you're a crazy person. And you got to imagine, although they've seen Jesus do some pretty miraculous things, that there's a little bit of that in them, and they're going, okay, Jesus, that sounds really great, you know? And then let's move on. Let's talk about how you're going to bring a kingdom here, and we get to be a part of it, and we get to be big dogs. But this whole kingdom thing, or this whole ecclesia thing, this whole movement that he's going to be starting, that's where we're going to pick up where the gospel stories leave off, is this movement um, is going to be the next chapter in the story that God is writing in human history. And it will become, as we know, the largest movement in human history, the Christian church. So let's go to the book of Acts. And if you don't know anything about your, uh, your Bibles or you don't have a Bible, you can get a Bible app. Um, there are the Gospels, which we just talked about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are stories of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then one of the Gospel writers, Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, but then he also wrote a part two. They used to be one, now we kind of divide them into two, and he wrote the book of Acts. And that is the Acts of the Apostles, what happens after Jesus' resurrection. And it's the story of the early church. And so I want to jump in there, and I want to talk about what comes next. And so here's the scene. Uh, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's appeared to hundreds of people, he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and preparing them for what is next, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. So in Acts 1 verse 4, here's what it says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so his instructions are, you need to wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit is going to come. So just go and pray and wait for that to happen. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So it's funny because the disciples, they've seen so much, they've been through much. I mean, they're sitting next to and talking with a resurrected Jesus, and they're still thinking, now when do we get this whole kingdom thing? Like, when does Israel come back to prominence and into power? And when do we get some authority here? And, and Jesus just goes, okay, they're, they're still not getting it here. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He says, look, I, you know, you're not getting the whole kingdom thing, but the kingdom of God will arrive fully, like I've started it, but it will be consummated in the future. I don't know when, that's the Father's business, he hasn't told me, but it will come. But in the meantime, here's what I want you to do, is I want you to wait for this power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, because it's going to help you accomplish the mission that I'm going to set out for you. I would imagine that the disciples' ears perked up a little bit when they heard that they were going to receive some kind of power. Because if you know the story of the disciples, they're always vying for power. They're always thinking, okay, well, when do we get to be in charge? And there's something about the human heart that we really want to, to have power. We really want to have authority. So my kids, um, my, my two oldest kids, they've started this game, and uh, you've played this game before. It's would you rather, right? And so they come up with all these scenarios. And this last week, we spent a lot of time in the car traveling and so they came up with a lot of would-you-rather scenarios. And here's the one that they're stuck on. Would you rather have the power to fly but five miles an hour or have the power to run at 50 miles an hour? That's tough, right? That's tough. Correct answer is fly. But they're, they're for some reason, there's some reason really drawn to this, this allure of power. 
And you have to imagine that the disciples were too. And that's why Jesus says this next. He reminds them, this power is not going to be for you and what you want. It's going to be so that you can do this. Be my witnesses. Basically, is like a witness in court. Is I want you to go and I want you to testify on behalf of what you have seen here. Uh, on the lessons that you've learned, on the miracles that I've done, on the resurrection. I want you to go, and he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and tell them about me. Matthew elaborates on this. In Matthew 28, 18, we know this as the Great Commission. He says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. So here's what he says. Your job now is to go out and replicate yourselves. Like, you know how you followed me around and, and you learned all of my teachings and my beliefs and how I lived life and all the things that you saw and what you've come to believe and the commitment you've made? What I want you to do is I want you to go and make more people like you. Replicate yourselves. Make more disciples. And so then they go and I can't even imagine how this next scene went. It almost feels a little bit like sci-fi kind of is i guess is it says then jesus ascends into heaven i don't know what that looked like i'm pretty sure that would be crazy but it says he ascends into heaven and he goes and he sits on the throne and now he leaves the disciples there going okay well what do we do now okay i think we're supposed to go back to jerusalem and wait right that's what he said we're supposed to go wait okay let's go wait and we're going to go pray and so they gather up the rest of the believers there's about 120 of them at the time and they start to pray and they start to wait for god to show up for whatever is supposed to be next and in the city of jerusalem there's a lot of energy there's a lot of people moving around because it is the celebration of pentecost and so all these people moving around and they're kind of huddled they're praying they're waiting and then all of a sudden it says that a violent wind blows through the house that they were praying in and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began teaching in different tongues, different languages. It says this in verse uh, 2, 6. Uh, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. And so you have to realize there was a common language that everybody probably spoke, but then there was a native dialect. And somehow, all of a sudden, these people were able to speak these native dialects, and the people around them are hearing this, are going, wait, wait, how are you able to speak the language that I speak? It says in verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? So there's um, this YouTuber, and I came across it uh, maybe a year ago. And this guy, he's, he's really interesting, and he's got a huge following. Like, his videos have like 60 million views on this. And he lives in New York, and he's just a young white guy, all right? And he goes to Chinatown, and he goes primarily to um, places where people either don't speak English or it's their second language. And he'll go into these different restaurants and stuff, and he'll pretend like he's just kind of a, you know, uh, uh, a tourist. And he's like, okay, now what's good here? How do I do this? You know, whatever. And, and he has a hidden camera, and he orders his food, he sits down, and then he gets a view of all the people in the restaurant. And then he just, very, very like nonchalant, starts speaking perfect Chinese to them. And everyone in the restaurant just goes, what? What just happened? And he's so good that he even knows different um, dialects. And so he can speak like whatever, whatever he hears around him, he can start speaking their language. And the, the look on people's faces is just like, what just happened? Like, that's not supposed to come out of you. How are you able to do that? I imagine that this is the same thing, is everybody is just sitting around going, wait, 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 hold on. How were you able to speak my language? You shouldn't know how to do that. And it says this, 
It says in verse uh, 13, some, however, made fun of them. So some people are amazed, but then some people look at them and they go, they've had too much wine. <laughs> I, lo- I love that Luke left that in there, right? Like, I love that he goes, look, come on, you guys are drunk. We know it. You guys are all just a bunch of drunks. See, this for me is an affirmation of the authenticity of this, is if you're making up this story, you're probably not throwing in, by the way, they thought the disciples were drunk. <laughs> oh, okay, crowd begins to grow. And uh, it's clear that something powerful is happening. And Peter doesn't want to waste this opportunity. So he decides this is a good opportunity for me to stand up and do my first sermon. Here's what he says in verse 14. Then Peter stood up. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And um, Peter is naturally gifted as a speaker. He's bold. He likes getting out there. And so he starts with an icebreaker. Here's what he says. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's probably a little laugh like that, like, ah, yeah, we don't even drink before at least 1130. Uh, Skip down verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, who is a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. That last part, as you yourselves know, because here's the context. Is there, he's not talking about a Jesus that lived a long time ago, and maybe you've heard of him before. Well, we're talking about a Jesus who is just in that city. Less than two months ago, he was publicly crucified in front of all of these people. And so it's not just some story that they've heard. Many of these people probably saw Jesus die. If they didn't, they at least knew somebody who had seen Jesus die. They knew the story because it had happened in that very city in which he is preaching this gospel. He says, many of you, you were here. You saw what took place. You saw the miracles that he was able to do because either you experienced it or someone you knew experienced a miracle. And it wasn't in debate whether he was a miracle worker. Everybody agreed to that. The debate was by what power did he perform these miracles? Was it by the power of God or by the power of Satan? Because the religious leader said it's by the power of Satan that he's able to do these things. And so everybody agrees that Jesus was somebody significant, that he was a miracle worker, that you saw him die. And now he is resurrected. Verse 23, the man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan of foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Now, this is quite a turnaround for Peter, because if you remember, just a couple months before this, when Jesus was on trial, Peter was hiding, and some young teenage girl said, hey, aren't you one of those people who hang out with Jesus? He goes, oh, not me, not me, uh uh-uh. Fast forward, and now he's standing up in the very city in front of the very people whom he was just afraid of proclaiming the message of Jesus. And and I got to be honest, the strategy that he's using is a little bit uh, for me. Not how I would lay out a sermon, probably. Now, Peter would know better than I would, but he gets up there and he goes, okay, here's the deal. Jesus died and you killed him. Oh, he did really good with that icebreaker drunk at nine in the morning, but we kind of took a left turn here. What's happening? He says, you are the ones who put him there. And what he means by this is not you because like you specifically were there and maybe you cheered it on or maybe you were a part of the people who put him on that cross. What he's saying is even if you weren't here, even if you weren't in town, it's you who put him on the cross. You're at fault. And what he meant by this is us as humanity. It is our sin. It is our rebellion that put him on the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are and you're a little bit skeptical like me, when you hear this, you go, time out, hold on. I'm with you so far. I'm with you about the death and all that kind of stuff. We saw that, but now you're trying to tell me that he's alive? See, 
we have this conception because we're, you know, post-enlightenment, rational, scientific people that we don't believe in superstitious, supernatural things anymore. But these were simple people. They probably believed in, you know, resurrection and things like that. No. They saw death. They knew crucifixion. They knew that when you die, that's the end of it. In fact, they didn't have the modern medical technology that we have in order to bring people back to life. And so death was definitely final for them. And so when they heard that this person has resurrected, their response would have been as skeptical as yours. Is, mm, I'm not too sure about that. Peter elaborates on this in verse 32. He says, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. There's an interesting area of apologetics. Apologetics is just a defense of the faith. And when I was first getting into apologetics, I was shocked to see that there was this whole area of study about the historicity of not only Jesus, but his resurrection. And the bottom line is this, and you can see this in 1 Corinthians 15, is Paul lists out a bunch of people who claim to see Jesus after his death resurrected. He says there's groups of people, 500, there's individuals, there's believers, there's non-believers. And here's what was shocking to me is in this area of study, there's Christians and there's non-Christians. And pretty much everybody agrees that these people, these individuals and these groups of people, believers, non-believers, that they all believe that they saw Jesus resurrect. I thought that was kind of crazy. Is You're telling me that all of these people testified to the fact that they saw Jesus resurrect? Yes. What was up for debate is, well, why did they think that? Why did they think that he resurrected? And there's all these different theories, and, you know, we get into all that another time, but I found it pretty impressive that, wow, these people would affirm that this is history, that people really did believe that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And I think this is part of what makes Christianity different from other religions and worldviews, is other religion worldviews are based on either someone's opinion or on someone's word. So the religions are based on, okay, I'm speaking on behalf of God, or God has sent me, or God has revealed something, and so you must believe the teachings that I'm bringing to you. Or there's other worldviews. It's like, well, this is how I think, you know, living life makes sense. Here's a philosophy that you can follow. Here's some maybe scientific evidence that will help point you in this direction. And, and all of those are based on someone's opinion or that we have to trust what they say. But what's different about Christianity is it's based on a historical event, something that happened in real space and time. Is Jesus resurrected from the dead? If that took place, then all the things that he preached are true. If it didn't take place, ignore it all. It's all based on this event right here. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So you say, look, yeah, I get it. The whole resurrection thing, it's really hard to believe, especially since you just saw him die. But do you want to know how we're able to speak in these different languages all of a sudden? It's confirmation that the message that we're bringing to you is true. 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. It's like, Peter, we got that part, okay? <laughs> like you keep rubbing it in. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he makes his argument, and the logical conclusion is, if Jesus did resurrect, then he is the promised Messiah. He is the king over creation. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they hear this message and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they go, you're right. This is, this is what conviction looks like. Not only a conviction of sin, because these people were faithful Jews, and so they probably were convicted of their sin. They knew that they were broken. They knew that they needed God. They knew that they couldn't do this on their own. 
But this conviction is a conviction of the truth of who Jesus is. So you have to have two things. You have to have the conviction of sin, knowing that you're a sinner and you can't fix yourself and you can't impress God and you can't earn your way into heaven. But you also have the conviction of the truth of Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he really did die. He really did raise and is through his death that you can be saved. And so when they look at it and they've heard kind of the evidence and they've said, well, the, uh, the diagnosis, it fits. Is sin, is the issue within my heart, within the human heart, is what is... Um, it has shattered the world and shattered many lives. The consequences, they also fit. That we continue to try to find things that are going to fulfill us, that are going to make us whole, that are going to bring our lives and the world back together, but all we found is hopelessness and dissatisfaction and despair. And so, so the solution that you're proposing to be reconciled to God through Jesus, it fits. Augustine says this, he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I don't know if you've ever had conflict with somebody in your life whom you, you really care about. So uh, one of the things that I think about is either growing up with my parents or now with my wife, if there's an argument or something that takes place before my day starts, and we don't resolve that before I either went to school or before I go to work, and for the rest of the day, I just feel like a little bit restless, a little uneasy, like things aren't quite right in my world. And it's because there's this conflict with the person whom I love. And that's why we have this rule in our house, and we've always had it, that we don't let the sun go down on our anger, that we're going to resolve this. Even if we were to sit up all night and talk this out, we will resolve this because there is a restlessness that comes when you have relational conflict. I think this is also true on a cosmic scale. As so many of us, we feel restless. We feel, we feel broken. We feel like we're missing something, and no matter how hard we try to find something in the world that's going to fix that, we can't. It's because what we're looking for is a reconciliation. We're looking for the, the resolution to the conflict that we have with our Creator. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His response to their cry of what shall we do is simple. He says, you need to believe and be baptized. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Repent. Turn away from your rebellion and your sin. Quit trying to go your own way and start heading in the way that God has called you. Start following Jesus. Allow him to be the one that determines your priorities and your beliefs and your actions. Instead of it being about what you want, make your life about what he wants and then be baptized. And baptism is simply the public proclamation that you have given your life over to Christ that now you are putting your trust not in your own works and not in what you can do, but in what he has done for you on the cross. And the, their symbolism here is when you're baptized, you're dying to self, and you're rising alive in Christ. Your old ways, your old person, all of that is dead, and now you are alive because of what Christ has done for you. It's like when people stand in front of their friends and their family, and they make this commitment publicly that they are going to commit to this one person for the rest of their life. And that's kind of the same thing that happens in baptism is we're publicly saying, hey, I am committing to following Jesus from here on out for the rest of my life. It's all about him and I want you to know about it. It says that you will be made new through the work of the Holy Spirit when you do this. Verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter is saying um, this isn't just a one generation thing. This isn't just a one location thing. This isn't just a one people group thing. This is for your kids and for your kids' kids and your kids' kids. And it's for every town and every nation and everybody under the sun. This is for them. Those who are far off from God can come near. And here's how he ends the passage in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number 
that day. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. Not just that there's 3,000 people that just stood up and went, we believe, but 3,000 people who could have walked down the street and looked and seen in the tomb and seen if it was empty or not. 3,000 people who literally saw him crucified on the cross. 3,000 people who may have, some of which participated in his crucifixion, stood up and said, we believe this message, and they were baptized. This was day one of the church. And just like Jesus predicted, and if you're a skeptic, and I'm at heart a skeptic as well, you gotta, you gotta give some, some credit to Jesus here. Is he made this, this prediction that there would be a movement that is so big and so powerful and so transformational that it is going to turn the world upside down and there is nothing that will be able to stop it. There is not a dictator, governments, violent persecution, church division, corruption, secularization. All of those are going to stand in the way and against all odds, it is going to continue to move forward. It's going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to change the world. It may take different forms in different places. This last week I was traveling and I stopped at a... Uh, a Benedictine monastery, very, very different than the life you and I live. These people live a life of simplicity, of contemplation. Um, many of the families who live around there, they've moved there specifically for that. They go to mass three times a day. I mean, it is a different world. I've also been to the middle of nowhere in Africa where people are worshiping in the dirt with a tarp over the head, and they're just, they're worshiping all day long. And I've been to churches like ours with moving lights and craziness. And, and here's what's cool. Although they look completely different, they're all proclaiming the same thing, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he is king over all creation. Just like Jesus predicted, that it would go to all ends of the earth and nothing would stand in its way. So last week, and what we did was we just continued to proclaim that message that Peter proclaimed. We continue to proclaim Jesus is alive, he has resurrected, and we've invited people to come and to believe. The next step, he says, is now after you believe, be baptized. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.